You're listening to Trading Places. This show is supported by Silverbird, the first digital bank for international trade. Silverbird provides European and UK business accounts for exporters from over 100 countries, giving them access to fast and easy cross-border payments with multiple currencies. For thousands of years, the world has been drawn to one precious material that has endured the test of time. Empires have fought over it, and societies have placed it at the epicentre of ritual traditions. Today, it's found in a multitude of devices, from mobile phones to satellites. I'm talking about gold, a rare metal that's found in the Earth's crust. Evidence of its use can be traced as far back as pre-dynastic Egypt in the early 5th millennium BC. Initially, gold was used to make jewellery and idols for worship, but things started to change in 1500 BC. This was when the ancient empire of Egypt, which benefited from its gold-rich region Nubia, made gold the first official medium of exchange for international trade. Over the centuries since then, gold has been a central player in humanity's expansion as we sought new ways of using it to conduct business, be it as a currency, or as a stable entity to peg the value of currencies to. The fascinating thing about gold is it doesn't matter where societies have emerged. Many formed a relationship with gold independently of each other, allowing it to become a medium of exchange accepted anywhere globally. But therein lies a conundrum. Gold is valued for its rarity, yet it seems to be everywhere and readily available. But it is not as ubiquitous as we think. An estimated 187,200 tonnes of gold has been mined since the beginning of civilization, which today would roughly fit into three Olympic-sized swimming pools. Gold, essentially, for millennia, has been money. There are times when people have used uh, bronze bars. Cattle have been a form of currency. But over a period of time, the durability of gold, really its physical properties, meant that it sort of won out over those other things. It doesn't corrode. It doesn't rust. They've pulled gold bars from the bottom of the ocean that have been there for 40 years and they're as good as the day that it sunk. So it's that durability, it's it's malleability, it's very easy to melt and divide. It just became uh, the most convenient source of value. But it was su- sufficiently rare that it kind of just found that middle ground that met the need of people for some form of store of value to get away from what was otherwise kind of barter trading, if you like. This is Sean Russo, Joint Managing Director and Founding Principal of Noah's Rule, an advisory company that largely works with gold mining companies helping them to build mines and provide them with selling strategies. For 20 years of my life, I worked for the Rothschild family and the Rothschilds were at the centre of the gold market in the 1800s and 1900s. And twice a day for many years, the gold price was actually set in the offices of, of Rothschild, the London AM and PM fix. So London was the historical sort of trading centre for gold in the 18s and 90s. Zurich has historically been the Swiss have an affinity has been there. New York is a very significant market, has the largest futures market. So the financial trading of gold tends to centre 
very much around London and New York, whereas the physical markets are all around the world. And when they quote on the television at night the gold price in, in US dollars, that is the price for delivery in London of 400-ounce bars. And that's the benchmark around which everything operates. But in Australia, a gold producer will produce gold in Australia and they will sell that gold to a bank at the London price. A trader will take that gold bar and they will ship that gold to a consumer in China. And the consumer in China will then buy that gold bar, but they will also buy that gold bar at the basis of that London price. The relationship between gold and global currencies is a long and tumultuous one. And in many ways, it's linked to the economic rise and fall of global centres of power. Gold coins have been minted throughout history, but the earliest attempts were not regulated. That resulted in inconsistencies in manufacturing processes. Malformed coin shapes allowed clipping to occur, which was when people chopped the extra bits from the outside of coins to melt down and create new ones essentially ancient counterfeiting. So how does this connect to the world of today, one with paper currency and digital transactions? Well, gold is very much part of how we got to colourful banknotes and Bitcoin. The Great Recoinage of 1696 was an attempt by the English government to solve the problems with minting technology. The plan largely failed, but what it did do was lead to the adoption of paper money in Europe, also known as fiat money, or money issued by government decree. This set the gold standard in motion, a monetary system where a country's currency has a value directly linked to the current price of gold. This system meant an individual holding some amount of paper money could go to a bank and exchange it for a fixed amount of gold. However, the gold standard was slowly abandoned in the 20th century. It began when a number of countries during the First World War refused to convert cash to gold in order to freely finance the escalating costs of combat and later reconstruction by literally printing more banknotes. This was followed in the 1920s by the crippling hyperinflation that besieged countries like Germany, which watched as the value of their paper money plummeted. When there's a problem in a particular place or a currency is seen to be failing, the market forces and people's general intelligence will recognise you you don't want to own that. And, you know, I think we all grew up with those pictures in Germany where, you know, people were taking a wheelbarrow of money to buy a loaf of bread. That's that idea that, you know, you can just keep printing money, but they just don't keep making more gold. Germany's hyperinflation crisis in 1923 helped pave the way for Hitler's rise to power as a disenfranchised population put their faith in an ideology that promised them a return to wealth and stability. As the world descended into war for a second time, the major Allied powers found themselves again having to spend enormous amounts, financed by printing yet more money to fund their armies. But the world did get back to a gold standard of sorts after 1944, all thanks to the US's enormous stock of physical gold, famously kept at Fort Knox. The launchpad for this arrangement was the Bretton Woods Agreement between World War II Allied nations in 1944. They agreed to avoid trade wars and to a set of rules that would form a framework for fixed international currency exchange rates. It paved the way for the US dollar to become the de facto global currency because it held most of the world's gold reserves 
and was therefore declared the most stable. Most countries' central banks began pegging their own currencies to the US dollar instead of gold, buying and selling their own currencies in the foreign exchange markets to maintain their exchange rates. This system lasted for almost three decades, until a shocking Sunday night television address in 1971 by then US President Richard Nixon that would lead to the demise of the gold standard entirely and alter the gold market to this day. We must protect the position of the American dollar. In recent weeks, the speculators have been waging an all-out war on the American dollar. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets. Now, this action will not win us any friends among the international money traders. But our primary concern is with the American workers and with fair competition around the world. I am determined that the American dollar must never again be a hostage in the hands of international speculators. Nixon going off the gold standard 50 years ago, there had always been at least one currency in the world that was in some way backed by gold or linked to gold. And so then every other currency could be linked back to that. And, um, you know, it, it did create significant pressures, certainly around the time between the wars, um, you know, gold flowed backwards and forwards to balance trade. And to some extent, um, what happened is around the time the Americans start to become prolific at spenders and were funding the Vietnam War, they simply weren't able to contain the level of spending they desired to the level of gold they had. And in fact, uh, Francois Mitterrand in France started to demand that their US dollars that they were receiving in trade with the, the US was delivered by gold. And when they realised that if they actually had to deliver gold for all the money they were printing, that they would run out of gold, they decided to change the rules and um, made it no longer convertible. So you could say that it's an experiment that is yet to be proven as to whether that's right or not. Now, there are lots of people who say we can't go back onto the gold standard because there isn't enough gold in the world to support the global economy today. That's not true in the sense that they're not at the current price, but if the price was substantially higher, um, it could be. And there are people who believe that that's what will happen. There are people that believe at some point in the future we will go back to a gold standard and gold will be marked up to some um, much higher price in order to make that work. Fiat money is essentially a promise. The paper it's printed on is not valuable, but the apparatus and idea behind it gives it worth. And that allows a grocer to trust that my notes or coins or card are good to pay for my groceries. But as crises over the last 100 years have proven, the reliability of gold means it's something that people believe they can fall back on in hard times. And in a world of fiat money and digital bank accounts, the culture of gold and the idea of its stability is still something that plays a critical role in different societies around the world. Gold is perceived as a major part of investment in the country. A lot of households feel that buying gold is as if you're securing your future. You, you know, it's the easiest way of putting your money in the safe place when you need it. It's easy to just sell it off and turn it into cash the day you want it. Nikita Bandari and her sister started their jewellery business Asga in the Indian city of Jaipur seven years ago. Their business, which caters to a new emerging class of Indians, 
is part of the country's $700 billion fine jewellery market, which accounts for 7.2% of India's GDP. What that means is an understanding of the intricacies of gold markets is essential for Nikita to run her business, and indeed any Indian jewellery business, regardless of their size. We actually started making buttons, but buttons made in the way jewellery is made in India. After about two to three years, people started asking us to make women jewellery. And that's how we started the women jewellery section. So we aren't making real gold jewellery majorly. That's only on orders. But we make our jewellery in brass or silver and we gold plate them. So what was it that attracted you to focusing on men's jewellery first? Because uh, there were no Indian brands who were doing accessories for men who would dress men up the way they would want to. And in India, even men dress up like extravagantly. It's not like it's just for women. Uh, And clothes and Indian weddings, I'm sure you must have heard, they're like larger than life things. This is where we came from that, you know, this is something that we can start with and not just a very only jewelry brand, but translate all that art into something for men. And since starting your business, how much have you grown? We've grown uh, a lot since when we started, especially on the retail side. Our online side of the business has multiplied by, I would say, at least 10 times. That's the kind of growth we saw in the last two years, even after the lockdowns and even after the pandemic, because I believe that all that was left for people to do was build their uh, business online. And we really put in an effort there. Nikita, aside from gold being valuable, what role does it play in Indian society? Gold is an essential item for our weddings in the country. You know, any kind of a wedding, whether it's a very privileged class wedding or if it's even if it's a house, which is a very low uh, economical status, if they have that, even then uh, they will still want to go and buy the minimum amount of gold that they can I put this question about the psychology of gold to Sean. The Chinese and the Indians are probably regarded as the two greatest consumers of gold, very large populations, and people that have had a history of a sort of a a lack of faith in in paper money. So ultimately they recognise the need for paper money, but they love to save in gold. I mean, gold is still very much in the psyche of the average Indian, the average Chinese person, as where you put your savings. You need money to buy a cup of coffee. You need that kind of stuff. But your savings should not be in paper money. Your savings should be in gold because paper money, you know, can change. And there's been, you know, hundreds of different currencies over the years that have failed. I mean, the the US dollar is the third currency of the United States, which is not even 300 years old yet. So paper money comes and goes. And those markets, they have the longest memories New countries don't have that history. The US and Australia just don't have the same affinity. But as I said, people within those countries that have that historical connection to those countries do have that. But otherwise, I think it is. It's really back to that that core of the history and the long-term history, and it's passed down. I wouldn't say that it's the primary investment source, but it's the easiest way of investment. Now, imagine uh, property is expensive. It's pretty, pretty expensive. You know the population in India and you know the land base we have and how expensive it is to buy a house in India. So not every household can afford to do that. But every household can afford to save up and buy one, two, five, ten grams of gold whenever, you know, how much ever they are able to save. 
and because gold is something that we perceive it's not going to lose its value. So that's the reason people feel that, you know, if you buy gold, at least your money's safe. It's not going to go down. The market value of gold has far-reaching consequences. Prices have trended higher since the turn of the millennium. Last year, as pandemic fears rocketed, gold prices by the ounce cracked 2,000 US dollars. In late 2021, gold prices are still hovering near that high. I asked Sean what that trend means in order to get a sense of what a return to the gold standard might look like. If you go back to 1980, um, the gold price got to 800, which was the highest price it had been. So after the inflation of the 1970s. And an interesting benchmark to have a look at is in the year that gold price traded to 800, 850 was the high in 1980, which wasn't surpassed for another 20 years. The Dow Jones Index in the United States in that year was also at 800. The Dow Jones Index today is at 34,000. So back in 1980, one ounce of gold could essentially buy one of every share in the Dow Jones. Today, it would take 18 ounces of gold to buy one of every share in the Dow Jones Index. There are certainly people, and Pierre Lassonde, who'd be recognised as one of the world experts on gold, which I also adhere to, that at some point in the future, we will again see the gold price and the Dow Jones Index as one benchmark be at equality. And I certainly have heard people talk about the price needing to be something in the order of twelve to 15000 for gold to be the similar proportion of the value of US dollars in circulation. As gold prices increase on average, it also means that individual consumers are having to reconsider the kind of gold they are purchasing. A carat is the method used to indicate the pureness of gold. 24 carats is the highest purity and incorporates the least mixing of other alloys. Subsequently, it's the most valuable. I asked Nikita what higher gold prices mean for India's jewellery buyers. What happens is if I am working with gold, I would need to buy mostly in its pure form. So because gold is becoming expensive by the day, the carriage of gold used in jewellery is going down. You can still buy something that is wearable at a certain affordable price. So what happens is that if in India earlier, diamonds were getting made in 18 carat gold because you can't make it in higher than 18 carat because gold becomes soft for the setting of those stones. So 18 carat was the ideal gold that was getting used for making any stone studded jewelry. But since gold has become expensive, we've suddenly seen in this year that all the jewellery is getting made in 14 karat gold. This is to control the price difference that is going to come into that particular piece if you do not use 18 and you use 14 karat gold. And eventually, I feel that people also say that it is going to go down to 9 karat as well. I don't know what the sentiment will be then if it's just 9 karat gold because the entire idea of buying gold as security and investment does not remain the same then. Because if it's not going to give you the value back as much, then there's no point. Over 90% of the world's known gold has been mined since the Californian gold rush. As I speak, machines and humans alike are digging away in mines across the globe. But how does the global gold market work, aside from the consumers? What's the apparatus like that gets gold from A to B? And who are the major players? Gold is truly a global market. The global gold market today, just the easiest way to think about it is in terms of how much new gold is produced as a starting point. And essentially throughout the world, about 3,200 tonnes 
produced annually. To put it in context, though, the estimate is that all the gold that's ever been mined since antiquity still exists because you can't destroy it. So some of it might be in shipwrecks on the bottom of the ocean, some might be in satellites in the sky, but most of it is jewellery or gold bars or, or something along those lines. And that's about 190,000 tonnes or 6 billion ounces. So this, and this is one of the reasons that gold is considered to be a very good store of value because essentially what's happening is each year we're only adding to that global stock by about 1.7 to 2%. China's number one producer, Russia's number two. But China is also one of the largest consumers of gold. So they're not necessarily exporting. In fact, they're importing. So China is not only consuming what it produces, but it's importing. India is a huge importer, but there's almost no production. Russia, the central bank, has been building up its reserves. Every mining company must sell their gold to the government. Some of that gets exported. Russia's not absorbing all of it producers. So that takes you to Australia. Australia, I would suggest, is the single largest exporter of gold in the world because the Australian public really don't have a great interest in gold and would buy in any given year a very small proportion of the 327 tonnes of gold that we produce. Then in terms of how big is the gold market, well, the market has to absorb all of that gold. The market has to absorb then any scrap that comes back to the market. When the market goes up, people sell their jewellery to get money. That's turning around. So the overall number that's turning over is somewhat larger than that. And then in some years, when there's a lot of volatility in the market, a lot of people buying and selling, it can be significantly larger. But the best way to do it is to bring it back to that core of imagining the new gold that's produced every year. As has been the case with many businesses interviewed throughout this series, the pandemic has caused huge shifts. The value of gold, as a safe haven in times of trouble for many investors, was, unsurprisingly, influenced heavily by the uncertainty that came with living through a pandemic. Gold rallied very hard as equity markets fell, as those things that people had favoured as places to put their money started to move in a direction that people had not been expecting. Money flowed into gold. It flowed into things where people think that they have some level of certainty. The minute that equity markets started to bottom and turn around, and no one at the bottom imagined that it was not just going to go back to where it had been, but go to the kind of heady levels we have today. Once that started, people went, oh, okay, crisis over. I'm not sure that the pandemic has done particularly anything to the price of gold in India because this is a global thing. Gold prices are globally affected. It's not that India has a very different pricing in gold and you will get gold at a different price somewhere else. It's, it's fluctuating overall. But yes, the demand definitely. And majorly the reason for that was because of the pandemic and because of the lockdowns, the weddings were either not happening are happening at a very, very small scale. And by small scale, I will mean if it's a normal Indian wedding in an upper middle class or a middle class house as well, minimum number of guests expected are somewhere between 300 to 500 people. And when the pandemic happened and the restrictions were to only invite 20 to 50 people, if that is what is going to happen, then obviously the kind of demand that has gone down has affected the gold market. So for some time, I think for the last one year, when we had those kinds of restrictions, the gold jewelry demand did go down. But at the same time, we also saw that if people had any extra income or anything to spare, 
what they were doing was buying gold because that's the only thing that trust in India. As the world went into lockdown, gold was not the only source of investment that was attracting the eye of canny investors. Bitcoin is a name that many of us have become familiar with in the last few years, and I asked Sean if it had the potential to steal some of gold's thunder as we looked towards the future. After all, Bitcoin is literally called digital gold. You know, the whole idea of Bitcoin is very much designed around some of those qualities of gold. The iconography of Bitcoin is a gold coin with a B on it. And when they make it by tapping on the computer and consuming large amounts of electricity, they call it mining. I mentioned before that we only add every year through production another 2% to the stock of gold. This is called the stock to flow ratio. So the the flow of new gold is only 2% of the existing stock. A lot of people will tell you that Satoshi tried to do the same thing with Bitcoin, this idea that there's limited increase of supply and ultimately a finite amount. He's trying to replicate in some ways that what did make gold attractive, but make it more meaningful to people in the modern era. And when that, when the world is obsessed with those type of things and quick returns and electronic trading and Robin Hood and, and all these type of things and new technologies and disruption, gold is just the antithesis of all these things. And ultimately, it always forces its way back to the mainstream because, you know, trees don't grow to the sky, bubbles eventually burst. And um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, many seasoned investors recognise that we are in the middle of an incredible financial bubble at the moment that's been blown on several occasions since 2000. And at some point, gold will come back. Throughout booms and busts, wars and times of prosperity, gold has proven itself to be the commodity consistently at the heart of global evolution. As our need and desire for it increases, scientists are already proposing ways to harvest it from more hard-to-reach places, such as the ocean. Some more science fiction-like locations include asteroids, but the sheer volume of gold in some space rocks could kill the value of the metal on Earth entirely. Yet as the world tries to look towards sustainability, how will the environmentally unfriendly procurement of this essential metal, as well as the human toll it takes amongst those who mine it, be reckoned with? One thing that is for sure is, as has been the case for the last 6,000 years, gold undoubtedly has a place in everyone's future. I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Trading Places.